And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. Welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. We've got a packed episode for you this week for sure. Looking back at the Toronto weekend, which was a lot of fun for many different reasons. We hope you've listened to the top 10 episode where we broke down our uh, top drivers from the first half of the season. Bit of a packed episode that one on because we uh, we got Marcus Ericsson to come on and uh, talk about what an honour it was to, to be top of our, our rankings, but also uh, the small matter of Alex Pelot's news breaking last week uh, caused a bit of a scurry at the race's headquarters and we had to do a little bit of clever editing and uh, get JR on the phone uh, a couple of times, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll readdress that from this weekend uh, shortly. Elsewhere coming up in this episode, we talk about Scott Dixon's return to Victory Lane, tying Mario Andretti's 52 race IndyCar win record, which was super, super impressive. We also talk about the other podium finishers, Colton Herter and his ripped balaclava and Felix Rosenquist making uh, making some moves and impressing us, no doubt, as I'll talk to JR about in a minute. And as I said, we'll definitely break down all the latest from the Alex Polo situation. JR, have you had any angry messages from drivers who are not happy with where they uh, finished in the top 10 last week? No, but I'm never sure if silence is better or worse. You know, like, same. I have I haven't gotten any like, hey, thanks, man. You know, thanks for thanks for throwing out. You know, throwing it down for me out there. Um, so anyway, yeah. The um, I, I don't I don't know what to make of that really, but uh, but I, I I stand I I basically stand by where we're at, and and certainly, you know, we mentioned it on the pod. It is hard. It's hard to do in the middle of the season. You just don't have you don't have a lot to work with yet, and there's so many so many different kind of things and variables going on so i'm sure uh, just like last year we'll feel even better about where we where we have everybody stacking up by the end of the year well let's talk about something we've been waiting for pretty much all season and that's a scott dixon victory um not because we're biased towards scott dixon but it just feels like um he's been kind of kind of banging on the door in in many ways or at least we've been kind of just wondering where that Scott Dixon victory was going to come from because we knew it was coming eventually and it was going to come from somewhere. We thought it maybe would come at the Indy 500 and obviously the, the pit lane speed and penalty, which uh, he's still pretty cut up about, um, you know, halted his chances there. So to win in Toronto was a big deal. I guess the the fundamentals of the race, JL, were pretty straightforward. Scott sort of undercut. I don't want to say undercut because it wasn't really. It was only a lap uh, before... Um, he pitted a lap before Colton Herter, but managed to jump him in the in the pit cycle. And from there on in, it was a lot of, I guess he was addressing after the race some of the complexities of of what was going on in the race. He felt like he had a a really imbalanced car in terms of a lot of oversteer. So that was good for him when he was trying to save fuel and just coasting it into the corner and just hitting the apex and and carrying the speed through. But when he actually needed to extract lap time from the car, it made it a little bit messy and made it um, you know tidying up the exits and trying to make sure he got he got a bit clearer of Colton Herter on the straight was 
was difficult. So a very good drive in those senses. And I guess we should point out he was engineered by Chris Simmons instead of uh, Mike Cannon as well over the weekend, which was significant. I don't think there's many teams could roll out a replacement engineer like uh, Chris Simmons to just sub in for the weekend, you know, and just uh, steer you to a, an IndyCar victory. That was impressive. But other than that, the actual race performance itself was was kind of vintage Scott Dixon, wasn't it, really? Yeah, it was. And and you mentioned you mentioned just having a loose race car and that sometimes it your yeah, your your delta just lap time wise between saving fuel and not saving fuel is you you suddenly find out, unfortunately, that it's not that much different. And so you feel like you're doing great while you're trying to save. And then you go to you go to extract that last little bit of pace and you're you, you know, whatever. When you're saving fuel, you sort of just assume, all right, I'll be braking a little later, I'll be carrying throttle a little longer into the corners. But you start to heat up the tires more while you're doing that. And and it's just those little, those little things that that manage to uh, you know, sort of surprise you sometimes. So that's a, it's interesting to hear that bit of feedback. But as we know, if there's anybody that can manage that type of thing, it's Scott Dixon. And it was I I did I I found myself a little bit surprised just watching the last lap that they he did give up a lot of pace to Colton and Felix on the last lap. That it it actually made me think: Is there is does he have something wrong that we're not picking up on? Like. I mean, he basically allowed them to close up a second and a half on the last lap, but uh, maybe, maybe just knowing that he had the gap and getting to a part of the racetrack that you're not going to be able to pass him, um, wanted to make sure that he could sort of nurse it to the end, just in case something something bizarre did happen. But great to see for Scott, uh, particularly. I think I think to me this is an indicator, not only that Scott Dixon is still. Scott Dixon is still every bit of the Scott Dixon that we've come to know over the last 20 years. Um, but that, but that the nine crew, there's some resiliency in, in the nine crew and Chip Ganassi racing, despite all of this craziness, we've seen other teams and organizations kind of seem like, man, when there's, when the, when this, you know, the stuff is hitting the fan that it just goes off the rails the IndyCar series is so competitive and so tight that you, if you can't, if you suddenly have distractions that you can't ignore and it takes anybody, engineers, mechanics, drivers, if it takes you off your game by just a little bit, um, that, that you're, you're nowhere on a weekend. And that Ganassi at, at, by the end of this week, they had some, they had their sort of shortfalls over the course of the weekend. We'll talk about Alex Palou, Palou, some of that to me is just, he's never been to the track. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of willing to willing to ignore some of what went on through practice. He made a small mistake in practice that cost him big. And, and then in qualifying, that's no fault of his own. That's kind of just a function of getting out of sequence and with your team and, and, you know, having an issue by the time you get to qualifying, but um, altogether they did a, an impressive job as far as I was concerned, just getting through this weekend, despite the, you know, the, the sort of chaos in terms of what's going on here with Alex and, and obviously that coming up for Marcus and Scott and they're just being this air of uncertainty around exactly what's going to go on with that team going forward suddenly, basically just within the last week. And so, uh, you know, for, 
for the group as a whole to do as well as they did for Scott in particular to stick it on the front row. It's as competitive as he's looked in a qualifying session. Uh, and then, and then go on to win the race and, and, and do so pretty comfortably in the end, just in terms of his pace throughout the race. He did not look like there was any serious threats just over the course of, over the course of race restarts, pit cycles, whatever, um, looked looked really strong. And, uh, and that was, yeah, it's good to see. I mean, it's, I, I find myself just because he's, because I, you know, he was, he was among the drivers that was always good to us young guys when we were coming up and he's been through so many eras of the sport and he is just the, he's the goat. He's, he's IndyCar's Tom Brady right now. You want to kind of see that I find myself, he's a guy that I just find myself sort of rooting for from the outside to, to keep it going, basically, you know, wherever he ends up, I don't root for, I don't, I don't like pull for Scott any more than, you know, any, anybody else in particular, but I think it's, it's good for the sport basically to have somebody like him who manages to remain this evergreen benchmark for everybody else to stack up against. And, And so it's cool to see him still a bit like Dario late in his career, we, we obviously didn't gain the, we didn't have the benefit of seeing what Dario's career really, really where it was going or how long he would have stayed in the IndyCar series or any of that, unfortunately. But, um, with Scott, we, we fortunately do. And so it's, it's cool to see him back up at the front and, and to see the nine crew turn around here. We talked about that after Indy, like we'll sort of see within the next few events, whether these guys really have what it takes to, remain and and get themselves back into the championship hunt with all of this stuff that's going on around the squad so um you know that's that's a it's cool to see from a fan's perspective and and i think dangerous if you're everybody else it was definitely uh it's definitely been an up and down you know season for for scott and i asked him about that in the post-race press conference which kind of follows some of the themes you were just talking about there jr about um how the you know he still felt even when we spoke to him at Indy, he felt some personnel were still, you know, kind of moving around and he didn't feel like the nine team was, was set in terms of where they were at and, you know, bringing people in, but also just their kind of uh, the, the nature of how they were approaching weekends and just throwing new setups at the car before big sessions and really just not a very nine like approach to, you know, in terms of what we've seen from them before, in terms of how they've gone about the, the, at least the first part of the year, but, you know, Indy was the, the, the big marker I mean you know JR and I you, you know joke about this often on the pod about how the double points at the Indy 500 affects things but at the minute we've got uh, Marcus Ericsson leading the championship by 35 points Alex Pelot third with 37 behind and then we've got Joseph and Scott tied for 44 points off the lead but if you take the double points out of the Indy 500 sort of out of the equation Scott's been in the top 10 in every single race and he'd be three points off the championship lead at this stage so it's it, I, this is why we're going to go over to the to the press conference where I asked Scott about the about the trials and tribulations of his season and and what this win means in the context of that. Yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a blah year. Um, you know, we we've had loads of top top fives, but you know they they're not going to win your championship. Um, and we're in the business of winning, right? So, you know, I think that's that's where it gets frustrating. You see the close misses and, you know, Indy's a good example. You know, uh, Indy's a good example for, for, you know, several years that, you know, it's it's, uh, it's a team effort. I made, a you know, a big mistake this year and, and you know, uh, definitely frustrating. And I think that's when it kind of, you know, you, you start to hit, 
a bit of a, a bottom out, you know, and, and understanding it's weird, the sport, you know, when you're on a roll and you just think it happens and it's easy and, you know, stuff like that. And, and you maybe don't really respect it as much, but, uh, you know, the, the low points and, and, you know, I've had these periods in, in my career, you know, four and five, you know, just where you're like, wow, you know, it's, it's, uh, you got to be really respectful of the sport. And, and when it comes, you got to, you know, you got to be extremely happy about it. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's never, it's never one thing, man. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's attention to detail on everything. It's hundreds of small details. Um, but that's where this team, as we've seen, you know, winning last year's championship with Alex to, you know, winning the Indy 500 this year with Marcus, you know, they're, they're a, they're a tough group and a, and a group that works extremely hard and, and, uh, just very lucky to be a part of this team. You said it was a, a blah year, but you've, I guess you've only had one race outside of the top 10 this season, which is still really impressive when you, when you look at it, does that give you a lot of confidence going into the second half of the season? Now you've kind of bagged this win that, that you're on to, um, you know, like a, I guess you're on a better trajectory at the moment. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's periods where you see like, you know, if you, you obviously do deep dives into a lot of things, Detroit could have been a lot different, you know, um, road America as well. And, uh, in mid Ohio, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's the same for everybody, right? You, you know, that's what drives everyone is just, you know, how crazy the competition is. And that's what I love. Um, but it makes it damn hard to, to win, but that's how it should be, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's always interesting, this process. And, and I think that's what, uh, you know, IndyCar is just so competitive across the field, you know, teams, drivers, driver combos, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really tough, but, um, yeah, I don't know. You just got to keep your head down, I think, you know, and, and uh, obviously, you know, if you keep knocking on that door, uh, eventually it opens. You know, I was hoping that it was going to open at, at Indy this year, but uh, <laughs> it just wasn't the case. Right, so it's interesting to hear Scott's take on on that. And I think just also wanted to pick, pick up JR on, on what you were saying about uh, about the team as a whole, because it was a, a difficult weekend. Definitely Scott was vocal uh, speaking even before the, the the race about how he felt about the Alex Pelot situation, uh, Keane's point out that he didn't know too many details about exactly what was going on, but said that um, you know he didn't think Alex had handled it in a particularly good way. But speaking after the race was much more kind of um, positive and upbeat about how the team had worked through the weekend, and that kind of plays into what you were saying about you know how impressed you were to see how they'd um, you know seen Alex qualify badly a couple of times, Alex blown out, haven't we? And and find a way to come back from that um, using that big undercut at the start of the race is usually how he does it. And it was exactly the same thing again here, pretty much um, obviously the cautions played out a little bit differently to some of the previous races where he's used that tactic. Even mid Ohio was kind of a, a mild form of that, wasn't it? So um, we've seen that tactic used to, to great effect, but Scott also pointed out the, the impact that he felt Chip Ganassi has on the team. Um, he, he used the words calmness and sternness I particularly like the use of the use of the word sternness because I can imagine how uh, Chip approached some of those driver meetings and stuff like that in the build up to the weekend after the news had escaped uh, about the two teams claiming to to own Alex Pillow. But Scott Keane's point out at this point, you know, we know this Chip Ganassi organization is full of leaders, um, you know, pretty much from top to bottom, really, whether it's, you know, down to the mechanics. Some of the, you, you speak to some of the mechanics at Ganassi and it feels like you're talking to a, a CEO of a, a Fortune 500 company, you know, really intelligent people who um, have have kind of, I guess they're all sponges and they they all kind of, you know, they, they live and breathe this atmosphere at Ganassi that is bred from the top. And I think it might be easy to point out that, you know, Chip 
has people who help him and he, you know he doesn't man manage every single situation in the Chip Ganassi team anymore because he just he, he wouldn't he physically wouldn't be able to do that but I found it very interesting that Scott was talking about Chip being really hands-on in the build-up to this weekend and really taking ownership of that situation and saying you know in, in, a, in a calm but stern way which I can definitely uh, definitely imagine what uh, Scott is um, is referring to there I guess we should move on to the the rest of the podium because we had two really interesting stories propping up the podium there with with Colton Herter and, and Felix Rosenquist so we'll, we'll start with Colton I think I at least on the podcast have you know kind of made my feelings about Colton's season you know pretty well known I feel like you know there's no doubt over the fact that Colton is if he's not the fastest driver in IndyCar then he's definitely in that in that group and, and deserves to be in that conversation but this season has been very hit and miss in terms of uh, the approach, I, I think, from the from the team and driver. But we saw Colton, you know, in the close another street course where in the closing stages he was trying to you know run down the leader. We've seen this happen before. We saw it in Nashville where he crashed trying to chase Marcus Ericsson. But I felt he was very much, um, you know, he was definitely very sensible for me from from Colton and his post race press conference um, and and comments in the immediate aftermath of the race to the TV as well. Kind of gave off an air of understanding that. He knows where he's at in the championship at this point and he really needs to lay down some points and he can't afford to to throw away podiums anymore like he did at, at Long Beach. So uh, I guess, JR, is that something you picked up as well and and, and a, a kind of an opinion you share from from what I've picked up this, this weekend, I guess? Yeah, I do think that, I mean, just watching the race, he took what was there, which is sort of what, what we've talked about at times, that whether in terms of the team tactics or or his or his driving and a couple of like unforced errors over the last you know whatever over the last season and a half basically that uh you know he 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 just took was took what was available to him he it, i mean it, it felt very much watching the race that he was needing to be more focused on just holding Felix off which is a different overall a different mentality than trying to chase down the leader um and and he did and he just did everything that you'd expect somebody who runs at the front every weekend to be able to do, which is kind of one of those things. I found myself watching the race just feeling like, well, Colton for sure has every, he has every, everything in his mental toolbox to be able to do this exceptionally well and hold Felix off. But because there have been a few of these instances where just sort of inexplicably, not inexplicably, but he just pushes a little too much or gets a little, overzealous in certain situations trying to trying to do more than is what it than what is actually required it does a little bit of a little bit of hesitation creeps into your mind about just writing it off as like this is a done deal in those kinds of situations where you don't do that as much if alex pillow or scott dixon or joseph newgarden is in the same situation so i guess that even just that reaction to it made me think oh maybe maybe he does have a little bit to work on here. And like the, the fact that that crept into my mind that maybe he's, he isn't totally bulletproof in this situation. Um, but then he, he showcased every, every ounce of kind of strategy driving the car and, and bit of bandwidth to be able to handle that as, as you would expect from somebody who's going to be in title contention. I thought it was interesting listening to his post race just on for the TV that it was almost he was he was talking about it almost as though he's not thinking championship this year like it's just about getting doing as well as they can and getting as far up in the championship which 
I frankly, I think is a, is a better point of view to have. Like when you're, when you're locked on to thinking of yourself as a championship contender, there is an element of that, that is, you know, we always talk about, and I think drivers, elite drivers know that you can't be focused on the outcome, like that that's, that's not a healthy way of approaching a, a weekend or whatever. But, and I think, and I don't think that that's something that's probably infiltrating Colton's, you know, headspace on a, on a session by session basis. But even if it's just loosely in the back of your mind that that's, what you're there to do as opposed to really releasing that and just being focused on the the day-to-day like moment-to-moment things that actually you know really trusting and buying the buying into the idea that that only comes from operating at your absolute highest level moment by moment over the course of every weekend and that even having that kind of goal-oriented perspective in the in the back of your mind is is not allowing you to be a hundred percent focused in the moment um that was just kind of an interest it actually made me think like oh, i wonder if this will actually be better for these guys over the course of the year because we you know we've talked about it before at length just that it seems like they take particularly high risks in situations when they're already better than everybody else, which is just completely unnecessary. So, so it'll be interesting to see just how the rest of this year plays out. Like if they take a slightly less, if they, if they take a slightly more, more risk averse perspective on how they go through these things, they might just, they might just turn into a Dixon, Newgarden, Pillow kind of contender. And maybe, maybe they, uh, he's not so far out of it that he can't kind of claw himself back into contention if they do what they have occasionally done, which is just bury everybody for a few weekends in a row. And so it'll be, I'm, I'm definitely, this felt like a little bit of a renaissance in terms of what these guys are doing and their outlook and whatever. And maybe that's just circumstantial. Maybe that's not because they've like learned some lesson or something. They just feel like they're far enough out of it. That they have to take a different approach. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm definitely interested to see if that turns into just a more consistently good group, basically as we go forward. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Right, Joe, Felix Rosenquist for Aaron McLaren SP, his first podium for the team, which is incredible to say that out loud and actually 
realize that that's a thing like <laughs> if it, you know i know he's not won a race for them but seriously not to have had a podium just feels like like the stat man's got something wrong there which is always possible when i'm doing the stats but anyway we know this one to be fact i wanted to get your before we break him down in terms of his role in the silly season and the alex polo situation wanted to get your thoughts really quickly on the alexander rossi uh shunt because i, I generally just love to get your uh, take on these kind of incidents anyway but this one in particular felt like a really kind of difficult difficult one to unpick and one that some people felt um you know I guess it, it divided opinion let's say um so so where were you at on this one where who did you see as the the aggressor in that shunt and who was to blame for it or was it a a proper racing incident that one well Felix was to blame for it just in terms of it happening like it was his, it was his doing that it happened. I don't, I don't want to say, I don't necessarily want to use the word fault, but because that indicates that it shouldn't have happened or that somebody should have been penalized. For me, from a penalty perspective, it was very marginal. Like, I, I guess I think looking back at it, I think the only reason that race control didn't penalize Felix for it, because it was absolutely avoidable contact. There's no question in my mind that that, it, they could have he could have avoided running into him the the shunt like rossi ending up out of the race there was a, a little bit circumstantial like that was a little bit kind of erickson pillow at at road america kind of like just got you know rossi's been on the receiving end of this it, it was similar in a, in a way to uh his getting together with Colton at Laguna last year coming out of turn five, that it was just like just exactly the wrong place that the two, that the wheels collided basically at that, at, at Laguna, it was rear wheel to front wheel. This is kind of front wheel to front wheel, but it just the way that you without power steering, the way that the cars get into each other, if you manage to just hit like the front or the back of the front tire or the front, yeah, I mean, front wheel tire or whatever, um, it just instantly turns the wheel and there's kind of nothing you can do about it. And in such close quarters, you're just going to find yourself fired into the wall. That being said, I think like Alexander was going to have a hard time staying out of the wall one way or the other there, basically, like as you're going up the hill, Felix's uh, approach to turn three and his line just on a normal lap through that corner was fast in using a lot of road through the center of the corner like basically, you know, it was interesting watching him compared to Colton. You saw this at the end of the race, just the the sort of juxtaposition of those two guys and the way that they were approaching a lot of corners around the track, but particularly turn three was that Felix was just carrying a ton of entry speed into the corner. I, I think with the putting myself in his shoes with the mindset that you're having to wait quite a long time, like the car really does have to settle get through the pavement change going up the hill there and get corrected and turned, you know, more straight, sort of almost a little bit to the left before you're able to get to full throttle anyway. So uh, uh, drivers that had sort of an earlier throttle application, like off the brakes, maybe earlier, getting to the minimum speed earlier, trying to pick up throttle earlier to get the acceleration off of that corner. You're just stuck in no man's land for a little while there. Like you can't, you can kind of pick up throttle and keep the minimum speed up and just maintain it, like hold it for a second. But you're, you're having to wait until you across this sort of bump in the pavement change on exit of turn three as you transition 
you know, up to the left to turn four to really go to full throttle anyway. So the alternate approach there is what Felix was doing, which was just barreling into the corner, carrying a ton of entry speed in, probably off brake, but basically just getting off the brake and letting the car roll through the center of the corner. I guess I say all of that just to say that I think the fact that that was his MO anyway, he's when you're following another car and you've got that difference between what you're doing compared to the car in front of you, the car in front of you is decelerating more at the entry to the corner where you're kind of just lap to lap, even when you're not looking at a pass, catching that car a lot to the apex because you've got a slightly different and and the net result is that car in front of you is going to get off the corner and drive away from you out of that corner a little better every time. But you're kind of you get to, you get into this mode where you're sort of seeing this opportunity start to create itself, even if it's even if it's kind of not actually there. You're just you're getting used to feeling like, oh man, I'm right on this guy at the apex. Like if I just, if this just, if the timing for this works out a little different, or if there's a little bit more of an opening here, I could be up alongside. And then that's, that's what ended up happening. I think that to to circle back around here, like, I think the reason that he didn't get penalized there is that Rossi did sort of leave the door open for him. Like he, he didn't block. He didn't, I think, I think Alex probably just looked in his mirror you know, three quarters of the way down the straight and thought he's three car lengths back. Like surely, you know, you're always, you're always kind of trying to manage that. Like you don't want to be losing pace just because you're throwing a block on somebody unnecessarily every lap. That's also helping that guy continue to stay close to you through the next part of the track. Um, So I think Alex, Alex is probably kicking himself a little bit for not more aggressively, fending that off because it was it was definitely a late a late long slow pass that if Alex had just been more in the middle of the road I don't think Felix would have even gone for it but um it's it's leaving the door open there it's it's there being room for a car on the inside and leaving room for a car on the inside that I think makes this because you know at the end of the day like he was not at any point totally alongside um so by the more traditional, you know, the the rulings that would have existed in the IndyCar five years ago or something, I think this would have been a penalty. But at the end of the day, I, I guess because the door was open, the the way that this has been, the way that the the rules have been enforced this year, it's sort of fair game. And uh, I guess at the end of the day, just unfortunate that it unfortunate for Alexander that it went just exactly as it went. There's of, of that of that situation happening 10 times there's probably eight of them that they both get through the corner and so uh i guess that's that's overall kind of my perspective on how that went down i could not believe that it wasn't a penalty uh, i was one of those people who was in the camp of 100 percent that is a penalty and I, I guess we're seeing a bit more of this kind of let them race kind of approach from from race control at the moment but you know alex Ale- alexander rossi's fighting for a, a top five there and it's just been you know, dumped in the wall. And, you know, it, I think there's a difference if you've got drivers who are two laps down or uh, are totally out of it uh, fighting with each other or, or or generally kind of going back and two with each other and, and there's a bit of give and take in, in the context. But this was just, this was, in my opinion, if you break this down to make it really simple, obviously you were right in saying that Alex left the door open and that's true. But Alex's crash wouldn't have happened if 
Rosenquist didn't get that touch of oversteer that he got as he put the power down, which sent his rear wheel into Rossi and then pushed Rossi off. So that's 100% Felix's fault, in my opinion, that that's happened yeah. because yeah, he's, got the, he's got the oversteer. And then, uh, as not that I needed justification for that or anything, but we saw exactly the same move happen between Ericsson and Pelot on, that, on, the, on the late restart. And Polo went around the outside and it was very, very close, don't get me wrong. But they, you know, they both showed if if they both took that corner correctly, um in, in a good way, that that is, you know, what was capable of, of happening there. I guess the only other factor I think for me that that it definitely made me think about in this race, more so than I tend to think about in other races, just in terms of how these things are penalized, is that right now IndyCar has basically a it has it has sort of a, a a weird set of tolerances where there's not anything between a drive through or disqualification you know from the race basically and so i think in these kinds of situations where they are marginal but there is clearly i think to your point like there's clearly somebody that's at fault here for what goes on and it does i guess i'm i'm not always i, I don't i don't totally buy into the idea that the penalty should be applied or there should be some degree of penalty considered just based on how it affects the person's race on the other side of it like whether alex you know crashes or just loses spots or or whatever like i think that gets kind of murky because that's that is often somewhat circumstantial but the fact that we don't have just like a five second penalty a 10 second penalty that can be applied to these kinds of things when they're in the middle I I do think that that type of penalty assessment might, because a lot of what race control is uh, in the end of the day, one of the things that they are considering with this type of stuff that they're trying to do, and it's and it's why some of the penalties are as harsh as they are, is to try to avoid things that they don't want to see continuing to happen, happening again. And so in this situation, if you don't penalize it, then it sort of makes the you know, it says to everybody like, well, basically this is okay. And I don't really think that that's what race control is trying to say here. Um, they just felt like there were some elements of the circumstance that they felt didn't warrant like Felix getting a drive through. And so, I don't know. I it, it feels like the type of thing that, you know, a five or 10 second penalty applied to these kinds of situations would be more than reasonable and might give race control something that they can do just to just to maintain a bit more control over what's going on. It's an interesting point. It'll be interesting to see if they if they do anything about that because it seems like we're getting to a point where we do kind of need that middle ground of uh, kind of mid- yeah a middle ground penalty. So that's that's an interesting point. Jr. We should also mention. Um, if any driver deserved a bit of luck in that situation, it's probably Felix Rosenquist, based on what he's been through over the past. Uh, two years with his uh, with his luck so congratulations to him for finally getting that podium over the line and I think just making good on what we've seen from the first half of the season we talked a lot about this in the top 10 pod so we won't get too much into it now um, but I do want to get into him on silly season because I felt like last week in all the furor of what was going on with Alex Pelot that he got kind of got forgot and I think a lot of people like actually I don't know if I made an ass- I don't know if it's I don't think it's fair to say that I made an assumption but when I when the whole thing first happened, I thought if if McLaren can get Alex out of his Ganassi contract, or if there's something that happens there that means he drives for McLaren next year, then Felix will go to Formula E, and it, it would be 
you know, as simple as that, basically. If that seemed like the obvious way that this all plays out, just given what we knew and 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 kind of know about what's going on for sure. Yeah, true. So I asked Felix that exact question. Has Alex's sort of, I don't want to say move because it's not a move yet, but his uh, his contract with McLaren, um, ha- has that made uh, a move to Formula 8 more likely for Felix Rosenquist? Here he is now. Well, I mean, by the sound of it, it doesn't sound like Alex has, you know, I mean, I don't know what's going on there, but at the moment, it doesn't sound like he's going to race at all. So, um, yeah, it's up to lawyers and stuff. I mean, it's honestly not even, it's not my business at all. And I think, honestly, it hasn't really changed anything from, I mean, this whole deal went down months ago. And I, you know, I didn't know all the details of it that I knew now, but not, nothing has actually changed. And I think if Zach was sure that I was going to FE, he would have already said it. So, yeah, I'm going to take that chance. And, you know, if there's a chance for me to be here next year, I'm going to I'm going to try to prove that I can that I can do that. So this blew pretty much blew my mind, JR, for Felix to come out and say that he thinks that Alex Plo might not race next year, which is a just a, a baffling sort of last resort situation that I had considered and and put in the initial story that when we kind of broke down the options of, of what could happen, he could be parked next year and, you know, he might not drive. But that in the back of my mind, I guess I always believed that there was a, a better solution than that or, or one that the two teams would, would come to that would make sure that a driver of his calibre, you know, a champion in his second season would, would still be on the grid next season. So really interesting to hear not only Felix say that, but also... Felix talk about himself in that context and sort of say that he doesn't believe that his IndyCar career is over yet based on everything that happened last week and that he can still um, sort of earn his way back to it, I guess. So um, yeah, that that podium has come at a really nice time for Felix Rosenquist. If you kind of believe what he says about his options for next season and, and where he might end up. And uh, I guess, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting to know that that Felix's in IndyCar career isn't necessarily over. And he was also asked by Jenna Fryer in the post-race press conference about Graham Rahal's comments after the race because Graham, uh, I don't want to uh, paraphrase Graham too uh, too heavily, but basically credited Felix for his drive and said that you know if he had an option to be able to sign Felix for next season and keep him in IndyCar, he would, which was a really interesting, um, uh, yeah, a really interesting state of affairs. But Felix kind of rebuffed that with, you know, everything being down to Zach at the moment and and he's the man who who decides, you know, everything that happens. I guess we should get into the Alex Below situation and kind of update from the from the weekend. And yeah, Alex spoke on, on Friday. A lot of no comments or I don't want to say no comments because that sounds quite um that sounds quite brutal, but Alex in his typical fashion with a, a sort of a smile on his face and and you could tell he was desperately trying to answer the questions he was being asked. It wasn't like a, I'm going to turn up to this press conference and say no comments or everything, um, you know, in a Marshall and Lynch type fashion. I'm just here so I don't get fined. Exactly. So we definitely didn't get that from Alex Pillow. He was definitely smiling. His body language was open, you know, really willing to try and answer questions. He even asked a few times for questions to be kind of rephrased to make sure that he'd understood them because I think it was a genuine effort on his half to, to behalf to be as helpful with the media as he possibly can and, and really try to unpick this, which is something he's always done throughout his career. Anyone who, you know, works in journalism or media will know that 
you know, Alex is one of the most, you know, approachable guys out there and a really, you know, kind of down to earth guy. So a lot of questions he was asked, obviously, about the situation. And he, he basically said he wouldn't discuss anything to do with McLaren. So anytime McLaren were mentioned in a question, he basically rebuffed that or, or any talk about where he might race next year, he kind of rebuffed that as well. So not a whole lot of um, knowledge coming out of that, that whole situation. Um, he did say he'd spoken to Chip Ganassi and that they were pretty much okay and that they'd, um, you know, within the circumstances were, were were pretty much as good as things could be, I guess you would describe it at this point in time. Um, so that was a, a relatively interesting um, admission there. But I don't think there's too many things to, to cover off from that um, other than the fact that I thought it was quite ballsy for him to to turn up and, and speak. And, and even if he did say, you know, kind of no comment on a lot of those things. Um, it was Zach at the track. Yes. So did that, did that at any point, like, was there, were there, I mean, to your, to your knowledge, did anybody talk to Zach and was there any further kind of insight in terms of what was going on from his end? I've not seen, you know, any sort of comment from, from Zach at all from, from the weekend. So I guess he was quite, quite heavily shut down. Um, you know, based on everything that's happened. Uh, the difficult part now is, uh, you know, if, if if legal teams start to get involved and things like that, you know, the the, the people involved will shut yeah, down and not gonna hear speak from about it. And, yeah, 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 exactly. So that's uh, that's one we've definitely got to keep our, our eye on. But I found the fact that Felix, you know, is in the team and I'm sure there's a lot of Chinese whispers going on around Ari McLaren SP about this whole situation and, what might be happening and there's probably not a lot of truth in a lot of it and there's maybe some truth in in some of it but the you know the fact that Felix dropped a few little things like um that he feels like this has been going on for a few months now um which is obviously a bit of a surprise to some people who kind of feel like this this kind of situation with Palo and McLaren started and then stopped but it sounds like from what Felix is saying that that doesn't appear to be the case but also for him to say um that he doesn't believe Alex will be racing next year to me is a massive piece of news and we'll be definitely, um, you know, keeping a really close eye on that. Uh, Ray Hall, I mentioned earlier, JR, um, how impressed were you with his race? Because uh, I guess I-, I can give a little bit of colour to this. Um, they did a test at Sebring recently where they made a quite a significant breakthrough after, I guess we've not talked about them on the pod a whole lot because they've just not been in, like, they've not had a car in the top five so far this season up until this point. So, um, we haven't really got a chance to to get to them properly or do any kind of deep dives on them uh, after any of the races specifically. But they, yeah, they did that Sebring test and really seemed to, to turn things around. I think they've struggled, you know, they, obviously their third car last season when it did the kind of uh, part schedule was really, really good and had a, a brilliant average finish. But I think expanding uh, to a, to a you know, a three-car team full-time is a, a really big deal for a, for any team. Um, and I think it's hit them pretty hard at times this year. And they've done a, they've had to do a bit of soul-searching and, and maybe got a bit lost along the way in terms of what they're doing. And Graham seems to think that the the dampers have been a, a problem, at least in in, in recent weeks. But they, he said they dusted off uh, some of the, the dampers they've used in the past as, as, as far back as 2008, which I thought was a, a really interesting piece of information. So they're, they're desperately trying to get a read on where the damper's at and, and how that sort of program is is working. But it definitely seems to be a lot better in, in Toronto. And I guess it can only be, you know, better for the series if that team is is back up there because across the three cars last season, they had the best average finish of any of the teams, including 
you know, Penske and Ganassi. So to, to have them out of the equation last year, it feels like we can't, this year, sorry, to have them out of the equation this year, it kind of feels like something big's missing from IndyCar in a way. Do, do you get that sense as well? Yeah, and it's it's interesting just that I feel like uh, Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing has been through this a few times over the last 10 years or something, just that they they go from being quite competitive to suddenly just being nowhere. And, and then they tend to claw themselves back out of it. It's interesting that... This year, it's just been so consistent across the board, like at every type of track, they're not really in the mix. And it's hard to know, you know, without getting, without having more insight, it's hard to know whether that's for the same set of reasons or different reasons or whatever. And they're just kind of not finding it. You know, when you talk about, I, I don't have any uh, specific insight into this scenario for them this year, but when you add an extra car, you're adding engineers, you're, that's, that's more cooks in the kitchen in some respects, like that's not always, that's not always a good thing. Like you don't always get everybody on the same page. You don't always, not everybody agrees in kind of the direction that you're taking development. In some respects, you you might be doing less development because you're just having to get all hands on deck. We've talked at times throughout the year. It's definitely true that there's sort of a shortage of personnel and talent that's available when you're adding, you know, it's, there's a, a lot of it is, there's a lot of gravity around the big organizations for the traditional talent pool within the IndyCar paddock. Uh, so I guess it's, and then you get to you get to things like dampers, where I think it's it's worth making maybe a bit of a a comparison like to F1 from this perspective, just to get a sense of like why do we why is the damper program of an IndyCar program important? Like why is this something that you hear teams talking about in a way that you don't in other places. Well, it's because in in F1 or or the way that sports car racing, like LMP sports car racing was for a long time with the full-on hybrid cars and all that kind of stuff, F1 in particular, we'll use it as the example now, that weekend to weekend, those teams are getting performance out of the cars by basically just maximizing whatever their update from the previous weekend was like if ferrari shows up and they've got a big arrow update they will spend the entire practice session just figuring out how to get the most out of the new arrow update because if they get the most out of the new arrow update that's going to be like half a second right them sitting there like tweaking on the dampers or throwing 10 different damper packages at the car maybe the most they're ever going to get out of that is like three tenths like they could go from the worst set of dampers to the best set of dampers that they've got and it's three tenths. So it's just not like messing around with springs and roll bars and and all of this stuff and kind of uh, maximizing the potential of the mechanical package. It's just not something that it, it's not in the it's it's not as high in the list of priorities for teams that are doing all of these like macro updates and changes on a heavily aero dependent car weekend to weekend. So that's, so like in the formula one world, all of these things, they've got, they've got huge groups of people working on their damper programs and, and all of this kind of stuff. It's not like they don't pay attention to it, but the reason you hear so much about it in the IndyCar field is because so much of the car is just locked in. And so, and that the field altogether is way closer as a function of that. So if you're Worst damper package, your best damper package is three tenths the IndyCar field. That's the difference between 20th and 12th, you know, in terms of where you're stacking up. And so when you look at an organization like Ray Hall, Lan- Ray Hall Lanigan, Letterman Lanigan through this year, um, 
if they had three tenths in their back pocket throughout the entire season, that's the difference of us talking about them every race and us not talking about them hardly at all, just in terms of in terms of what's going on. That's that's going down a lap every race by the end of the race if you're three tenths off. So the I I guess it's just kind of worth noting that some of these things, if you do, if you do get into a situation where you've got question marks or you're not developing or you or you kind of have lost your way in terms of the direction that you're going and kind of the tools you're using to validate what you do on the shaker rig, what you do on the sim in the simulator, what you're doing on track. If that starts to get out of phase, particularly with something as important as your damper program, because there's every every six months there's new technology in terms of how the dampers work. You know, the, the IndyCar dampers, the some of the available dampers to use in the IndyCar series are very, very advanced, like very high tech in terms of maybe not high tech in the way that you think about it with like lots of different things going on, but just the way that they've developed to do certain things over the last five or six years. Um, And it's, it's funny that it's not uncommon to hear teams just go back to something that's frankly just much more simple um, and get and find something and just find pace and find speed. Maybe just because it's a little bit more straightforward to understand how to make sure that you're not off in like a weird, you know, the damper isn't doing something strange that you're just not not familiar with or not aware of. So uh, it's great to see them back. I guess I thought just to talk about Graham's comment about Felix briefly, that felt to me very much like just he rates Felix highly. And, you know, I don't think this is going to turn into like silly season thing. Like it was just no, kind of no, like, I, I agree. You know, he basically just thinks that he should have a ride. And if, if, you know, if he had a way of doing it, like he'd figure it out and kind of that was that. Uh, I, the only the only other thing that I wanted to mention with the Polo and, and kind of the whole McLaren thing is just like, it makes you wonder a little bit if this was all just a, a bit of a ploy kind of, we talked about it on the last pod, I guess, that it's, it just seems like a lot of high risk moves from, from Zach and McLaren, but I don't know, man. It's like it at this point, it really does. I, there was a part of me that, and there's still there's still like a lot to unfold here, I guess, in terms of what's actually going to go down. But a part of me, when we were talking about it last week, just felt like, okay, surely there's some method to the madness here. That like there's some plans, Bs and Cs, and and some ways that things are going to work out that we're going to end up, you know, you know, like you said, I guess the obvious the obvious solution is Felix goes to. Felix goes to Formula E and whether that sucks for him maybe or whatever, but that doesn't seem completely out of the, out of the realm of obvious possibilities. But, you know, listening to his comments and kind of getting just a little bit of the vibe check of the whole thing over the course of this weekend, it's like, I don't know, this sort of seems like whether it's, whether it's Alex or it's Daniel Ricardo or whatever, that somebody's going to get like totally hosed on this whole deal. And that's, not, I mean, that's not just unfortunate. That's like kind of unacceptable, I guess, from my perspective. Like these these guys, race car drivers have short careers. Like I, I get it that at the end of the day, like whatever happens with Alex is in part Alex's doing for making the decisions on his end. But um, I mean, that just hearing that was like, man, that's 
that sucks. Like if there's any chance that that's actually where this is at, that that's just bad for everybody, basically. Absolutely. And there's a there's a rumor for every scenario in the paddock at the moment. So yeah. it's it's it is it's one of these situations where you know every journalist has at least well hopefully um, has two or three people that they can call and get a read on a situation in these kind of scenarios. But because there's so many players in this and there's so many different people involved and there's over it all is this looming threat of of litigation or or at least kind of inter-team rivalry over what's going to happen and 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 you know just things being uncertain that it's it's really difficult to work out which of these sort of noises that are coming out of the paddock you know in in any direction um it, it is true because i can give you a rumor for pretty much every single scenario <laughs> that we've broken down but which one will will come out is uh, another story but obviously jr will keep a close eye on this one especially as we're going to be back so often over the next four weeks, capping Iowa and the Indy GP and Nashville all one after the other. So we'll keep an eye on that. Going back to one of Alex's old teams. Well, he's only he's only been at two teams, so that's not a very good link really. But uh, David Malukas. Uh, his one old team. Yeah, exactly. His one old team. Uh, David Malukas now drives for with, with HMD. Just wanted to give him a shout out because I feel like he's been performing at a, a particularly high level pretty much since the Indy 500 really in, in many ways. Um but especially in the last few weeks and, you know, kind of, I, I, we should shout out all the rookies really because four out of five of them were in the top 12 in qualifying, which uh, as you've kind of outlined already, it's how difficult Toronto is and the, I guess the changeable surfaces, um, you know, trying to predict the the grip on those changing surfaces plus the fact that the track rubbers in so much. So then you're kind of, you're, you're kind of fighting against all of those things, maybe at once or maybe in, in part in different scenarios. And, and that's all very difficult. So to turn up to Toronto for the first time, as 13 people, I think it was, did in the end uh, over, over the weekend was was really impressive. But in the race, um, you know, David is one of those rookies that, that kind of got shuffled back a little bit, but still managed to have a, a really good finish in, in 12. So, you know, that was that was really impressive. And I think there's been a lot going on behind the scenes there in, in his team, you know, this season, David Lucas, he's been adapting to IndyCar, but I think his, his pit crew have, you know, maybe had some races that they'll probably want to forget and, and, and could have, could have done a lot better. And David himself has, has made some errors, but judging, judging by the fact that, you know, David was, um, I guess this kind of difficult to analyze figure coming into IndyCar because he'd basically, you know, if you go back over his CV and look at the numbers, they're not great until you get to Indy Lights, really, um, in terms of his, his final Indy Lights season when he ran Kyle Kirkwood close all the way. And everyone's talking about Kyle Kirkwood being, a you know, one of these generational talents. And the fact that David pushed him so close was was really cool and, and gave, gave people, you know, a lot of hope that David's going to be a, a really good talent. But there'll always be those people who point to his earlier junior career and say, Maybe that was just a one-off or or not. So the fact that we're seeing him perform at such high level, he set the fastest lap of the race as well, um, which is not always a, a sign of speed in IndyCar. Um, you know that can be down to many different things. Um, you know you might you might be totally out of the race and three laps down, you stick a, a set of sticker heads on and, and set the fastest lap. But that wasn't the scenario here. That wasn't the case. So a big shout out to him for his performance and someone who we're definitely going to line up to get on the show when we've got some some time to slot him in. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. 
Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. I think uh, just a quick shout out as well to Cal Mylot, who just we, we haven't talked about him a lot because the the result at the end of the weekend hasn't always been there a bit like David over the course of the year. But the two of those guys to me, uh, to to the same point that you made since through Indianapolis and since then, have really impressed me. I mean, I think that they've particularly Callum just riding solo. You know, he's been he's his pace has been right there. He's still going to tracks that he hasn't been to. I thought overall, just all of the drivers that had not been to Toronto before, I was impressed with how good most of them were. I mean, even, you know, we'll get onto this in a second to talk about Penske, but but even Scott McLaughlin was right there with the rest of those guys and and Alex and, you know, everybody. Uh, there, it, You wouldn't have watched this weekend even from practice one and thought half the grid has never been to this track before. It was not... That not it's not how the practice sessions you know ended up spread out. It's not how the race ended up spread out. It's not how qualifying was spread out. So um, a great job to all those guys. I know you've you've spoken a bit about how how highly you rate Callum, um, but but like I said, I mean the the two of those guys have been doing really an excellent job and and showing that they deserve to be here. I think you know just on pace without having to think too hard about where they've come from or what they've been doing. I think with Callum, the the impressive thing was that this, that this was on a street course where Hunkos Hollinger have struggled so much. And even Carlin before them, who they have a technical alliance with, you know, didn't always have the best time on, on street courses either. And would probably, you know, I don't think they'd shout at me for, for calling out that street courses were probably their, their weakest element of their program, especially at times anyway. So for, for Callum to be able to deliver that performance, they've clearly, you know, made some sort of breakthrough or, or um, you know, have, yeah, just, just up the performance. But I think, um, I think Ricardo Huncos deserves a, a shout out as well, because when you speak to him about Callum and about their program, he's very pro Callum making mistakes, which sounds like a stupid thing to say for a, for a team owner. But I think Ricardo has a, he's invested in the upside of Callum and is willing to let him make the mistakes that he he has been making. Uh, let's, let's be honest about that. I mean, the, the reason why they've not had the finishes is, is, you know, one of those reasons has been some mistakes from, from Callum. Um, obviously other things as well, but he, he has made errors. So, um, you know, really quite unusual scenario, I guess, these days in the sense that, you know, a team owner is willing to allow a driver to take his time and, you know, make those errors and, you know, basically crash some cars and, you know, create some crash damage and really like find the limits of everything. And that's the, you know, Ricardo believes that's the quickest way to learn. And, you know, obviously he doesn't want Callum's crash and he doesn't want him to make mistakes, obviously, but the, the, the kind of risk versus reward kind of setup he's got going on there is really cool. And it's something you don't see in motorsport very often these days. So it's nice that Callum's, I think Callum's really, you know, showing that performance because he's in that 
he's in, he knows he's in that sort of home where he can make those errors and make mistakes and, and not be thrown out of the team or you know uh, be be vilified for it. So I think that's a big part of it as well. Yeah, I think you're right. It's it's rare that you end up in a situation. You know, it's, it's rare that you end up in a situation as a driver that you're not. There's not a requirement for you just once you get to this level for you to just be in full execution mode every time you do it. And and I can certainly say from from experience that uh, a lot of drivers and and I've I've been in this boat where it would have been nice to have not have to not had to be in that mode all the time you know you get such little testing the simulator yeah you can get on the sim you can do all these things but there's there's nothing that's the same as you hear everybody you know guys talk about having great sim sessions and then they show up and they still suck on the weekends you know just as teams or or whatever like it still doesn't still doesn't like immediately transfer and so uh, i think that this is this is a great headspace or a great a great sort of environment to be able to operate in, to have the chance to operate in for Callum, particularly given that if it wasn't like this, they're just in a huge uphill battle as a one, as a one car team. So it's, 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 I think if you can allow it to be the environment that you operate within as, as team owner, as sponsors, as, as if you can get everybody on board, that's the hardest part is like, you know, listening to Graham talk about their year, it's like you can tell that he's he's got a little bit of his team owner cap on, like, or his ownership cap on, like, man, we we got to like start delivering for the sponsors, and like we don't have time to keep screwing around, you know, in the mid pack. Like, we gotta we gotta start creating some results and figure this out. Um, that's not the vibe you get from from Ricky or or Callum or or the rest of that group. It seems seems oddly relaxed when things are not going well uh, just compared to what you what you expect but um yeah definitely impressed with impressed of where they've been at and uh and cool to see great to see some of the rookies some of the young talent start to break through because at the beginning of the season it just wasn't the case you know you had it, Kirkwood was kind of the guy that you had the occasional qualifying like heroics but None of them were, were ever like managing to pull a whole weekend together. So it's nice to see a few of those guys start to pull it together. We'll just cover off Penske here super quick. Um, it, it started to sort of go downhill for willpower in qualifying. Qualifying was sort of a mess just across the board for like an entire, basically one of the entire groups it was a mess for. Um, the one thing that I, I'll just I'll just mention, and we don't have to talk at length about it, but like I, I guess I, I understand all the penalties for red flags and and all of the stuff. They've become even more harsh this year for not allowing you to transfer and and doing all this other stuff. I guess just in case, you know, you were on reds at the beginning and ripped a few good laps before everybody else got a chance to go do it. I think that's probably the reason that they added this no transfer rule to causing a red, but. I guess it seems like the type of thing, like I, I'm, I, I understand that they do these things because they're on a tight time schedule, all this kind of stuff. But the sessions are so short now that even with a really short lap, like we had at Toronto, like uh, the fact that we don't stop the clock under a red just seems kind of absurd. Like that all by itself, let alone, you know, reds, red flags are going to come out. Like that's just going to happen here. So basically the way that that ended up working for, I guess it was group two and qualifying was as soon as the red came out, like the sessions just totally screwed. Like there's no, there's no chance. I guess Colton, Colton bucked the trend there. Like he went out and did go faster 
on the one lap that everybody got at the end. But we can, we can sort of like leave that leave that where it lies. But I guess that's just something that bothered me watching the event. Like that seemed like a situation where there could have should have been some you know uh, provision for everybody being able to actually do what they were there to do. And that just didn't happen. But anyway, that, that host willpower who seemed like he had the, the pace easily to break through, get into the top 12, maybe even be a top six guy. We did not end up seeing the, the either strategic or willpower heroics through the race. So, so it kind of went sideways for them. Uh, you know, one of lucky, lucky willpower, as you called him in the top 10. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he didn't get lucky this weekend. (laughs) Unfortunately, he was particularly unlucky. Um, almost caused another, like almost caused himself to be out of the race on lap one. Again, I'm just kind of like, how many times are you going to do this? Like, that's just getting off the brakes and driving into the side of somebody on the first lap. Like that, that seemed a little, a little bizarre, I guess. Like, so whatever that, that, that just was what it was for him. Um, Joseph, uh, running, running third, basically until the, that round of pit stops that is, I guess, second round of pit stops that everybody came in. He didn't really look like he had the pace to challenge the guys at the front. He seemed like he was holding up Rossi, frankly, to me for like a lot of that, a lot of that as it was going on. Um, but certainly seemed like he was in it for a podium. Like it didn't, it didn't really look like he was going to be become heavily challenged by anybody kind of makes you wonder if Felix had gotten through the field a little bit quicker, like where would he have been just on outright pace? I think that to me was one of the lingering question marks, but Joseph, you know, basically they, they ended up covering it off on, on Peacock when you were watching it. But, um, the pit lane was so tight. He was in an area of the pit lane that you're coming around and kind of turning to the right and having to turn into your box at the same spot. I don't know for sure that he was basically the fueler when the fueler plugged in, he did, I think sort of signal that he wasn't getting plugged in when he first got in. It looked to me a little bit like maybe he ended up getting it before they before the inside rear tire changer pulled the car, the car can basically get tugged around when it's up on the air jacks. So that's what was going on there. I think Uh, he was trying to pull the car closer to the pit wall to be able to make sure that the fueler was fully plugged in. But whether, whether that was a hundred percent necessary or not, it is something that you, that, you know, pit, pit crews are aware of. They do practice, you know, this was a place where I'm sure they were just aware that this was something that was going to go on that basically took him out of contention. And um, Scott McLaughlin, I thought altogether, like I mentioned earlier, just not having ever been here and being, you know, being these are these were the types of places last year that Scott hadn't been to before that occasionally really struggled relative to his teammates. So I guess to me, he was as impressive as Joseph was on pace throughout the weekend, even if not right on his level, um, just based on the fact that, you know, he's obviously made some gains relative to relative to where he was at, at these types of places last year at a track that Joseph's been particularly good at as has will over the years. So, um, you know, that was, that was basically the, the Penske weekend more or less. Yeah. I think, I think power, if you watched his onboard at any point in the race, he looked like he had um, the understeer of an oil tanker. So I don't know if that was the result of damage from 
the the Grosjean incident or any of the other kind of wheel banging incidents that he had during the race or whether that was just something they they physically couldn't dial out through the front wing or stuff in the car in the pit stops and stuff um, I'm not entirely sure on the reasoning for that but it just it, his car did not look good through pretty much the whole race and yeah you, I think you covered Joseph off well I think the he was hosed by getting stuck behind uh, Daly and Johnson in that kind of second stint where um, he was kind of backed up and they, you know, uh, Dixon and Herter had been able to get past and Newgarden kind of led the train of cars that didn't. And then he had the pit stop where he should have jumped then to third and been right behind Dixon and Herter at that point. And he, he didn't get that opportunity because of the, the poor pit stop. But I agree with what you said about Scott McLaughlin. He was basically one corner of bad car placement away from finishing fourth in that race. And, you know, Graham, he, he did leave the door open a bit for Graham there, really. Graham did come from quite quite far back, but uh, I feel like that was another instance of Scotty doing some learning there, and uh, I don't think he'd leave the door quite that far open on a restart again uh, at, at Toronto, and then got in the marbles on the outside of the corner, and I think that really backed him up down the straight as well, lost quite a few positions. So that just shows how close the IndyCar field is on a restart and, and how just a slight sort of error can can really uh, can really hurt your chances so yeah JR that's uh, that's pretty much all we've got time for this week but I did want to ask is there anywhere I should be going when I get to Iowa is there any uh, have you got any advice for any uh, restaurants or local drinking holes that I need to frequent uh, there is a good coffee shop in Do- I actually I quite like Des Moines I, these are the types of places that when you look at the IndyCar schedule you're kind of like ugh like why are we, you know, why are we going there? That doesn't seem like a cool place to go. But but uh, at at every one of these, particularly midwestern cities, there's there's something kind of fun and and cool about all of them as as you get to them. Um, I'm trying to think of what the the uh, the coffee joint is. You just always know where there's a good coffee shop or a, so somewhere you've got to get brunch. It's like smoky something or other. <laughs> if if you plug it in, Des Moines. It's, I think, yeah, it's, I don't know, something like that. Um, you'll find it. They have a, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really anything other than like kind of a typical espresso or, or like macchiato cappuccino kind of guy, but they have a, they have a drink there called the voodoo chai. Okay. That I think you should, you should give it a whirl. That sounds like something I try and then immediately regret afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, for any of the listeners out there, if you're if you're finding yourself into a fancy coffee drink, uh, go 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 give it a try. No, that definitely um, definitely sounds yeah. up my street. That one definitely sounds up my street. I don't want to I don't want to put you on the spot, JR, but it'd be we, I guess it'd be more weird to not mention Iowa than it than it would be at this point after obviously um, Tatiana Calderon wasn't able to to race your shared car. Um, in Toronto last weekend. Have you got any update on what's going to happen this weekend or what can you say um, in terms of your your public uh, position on whether you'll be racing in Iowa this weekend? Yeah, sadly, as as we sit here today, I'm not planning on going. And, uh, and that's definitely a bummer because I think it's somewhere where just as a team, I felt like we could have shown up there. And I mean, I, I have a bit of blind faith at places like Iowa that we'll just figure it out and be pretty good. Um, you know, I've definitely gone through the gone through the experience not only i've certainly had the experience of showing up there in good cars and being good from from the time you roll off the truck but um showing up there in some cars that weren't great and figured them out quickly over the course of the weekend it's just the type of track that uh you know i've i've always had a very clear perspective on like what i need from the car to be able to go fast and have been able to communicate that really clearly to engineers and um you know that's uh 
done done enough driving and testing and whatever there to to feel pretty confident even even without much to go off of so bummed not to be not to be showing up but uh as a double header weekend it's I, i'll say from i went to the test we didn't drive but i went to the test or one of the tests uh you know whatever a month ago in june and i gotta say without question the penske cars looked really really good um saw joseph and joseph and scott both both do basically full stints and scott mclaughlin was a little bit better at the end of the stint but joseph put like half a lap on him and nobody else was even i didn't i didn't think anybody else even looked like they were in the in the conversation will um you know one of the things one of the things, I guess, maybe just for the sake of people, if you're if you're watching practice, you're watching qualifying, watching the race, for things to look out for, the cars that can turn in late, particularly into three and four, um, you know, can kind of turn in on the high line, you know, up in the second lane. That that's that to me when I'm watching other cars is always an indicator of like, okay, if you can do that, then you can place the car in a lot of different places. Um, you can straighten up for the exits. You can get good exits. You know, I always, these places are like, particularly now that you're not flat out all the way around the track, it's definitely a momentum track. So being able just to get back to throttle early, commit to throttle off the corner. Those are the things that, that really start to matter. Being able to run the second lane, there's a little bit of variable banking. So the second lane, you know, just works the, works the right front a little less hard, basically. Um, because you're, you know, it's, it's a little bit more radius through the center and a little bit more banking, especially in turns three and four. So a lot of different things to look for, but, but those are the cars, the Penske cars were the ones for me, just as a group, all, all three of them were doing a few things a little bit differently, but as a group, those were the cars to me that looked like they kind of run the most places on the track. Um, you know, they, they could do, they could do the most different things with the car basically, which, which when you get into a, you know, you get into a track that's less than a mile long, it's a 180 mile an hour average speed or whatever it is over the course of the lap. Um, you're catching lap traffic. You got to be able to get around cars. Those are the things ultimately that matter even more than just outright pace. So, um, you know, those are the things that, that I'd be looking for, that I'll be looking for watching, <laughs> watching, unfortunately. Um, and, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. I'll, uh, I think I'm going to email Chip Ganassi and just let him know just in case, obviously we don't want to see any drivers lose their seats, but if Alex is, you know, moved aside for a weekend or if something happens there, then JR Hildebrand's available for stepping in there. And I think my, my average, my average qualifying and finish there is uh, at least of races that I've finished. I DNF'd once. Um, ought to be up there with uh, with the rest of the boys that have been good there over the years. So that's got to count for something, right, Jack? You're being too cocky now. I'm gonna have to rescind that. <laughs> I'm gonna have to rescind that email. I don't want to see you race there anymore. <laughs> All right, Joe. That's fair enough. We'll definitely catch up after I. Anyway, you know, whatever happens, hopefully we see you uh, racing there for for AJ Foyt Racing. But if we don't, I'm sure you'll be back and giving us some great insight as you always do on the pod so thanks for listening this week everyone make sure you go back to last week and catch up on the top 10 drivers of the first half of the season we really really want your comments on that let us know how wrong we got it 
Um, I think JR admitted on Twitter this morning that he feels like he got it wrong, even though it's his top 10. <laughs> I, voted, I voted on the Twitter poll that we were wrong. So don't feel bad about setting in your comments. Absolutely. And that's podcasts at the hyphen race. Com. So send us your comments there, feel free. And if you've got any questions about the IndyCar series in general, any of the races that we're covering or any of the drivers, teams or personnel that we're talking about, please definitely drop us a message and let us know what you want us to, to answer, basically. Make sure you check out the-race.com as well for all your latest indie news, features and all of that kind of good stuff, as well as Formula 1, Formula E, MotoGP and some other nice bits and bobs on there as well. Check that out. Uh, we'll be back next week to review the Iowa weekend where there's two races, uh, which is almost like an Indy 500 length distance i guess when you add the two together so it's almost like a double point in 500 so i'm gonna hate it we'll speak to you next week the athletic looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events we've got the spot our partner StubHub has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.